the Powerful Nonsense Podcast. Learn everything you need to know to make a living outside the 9 to 5 grind and crush it at life. You'll learn from inspirational guests and in-depth discussions. Go from employee to entrepreneur and start creating a life you love and still pay the bills. So here are your hosts, Wayne Ingram and Jem Yildiz. Let's get on with the show! This podcast is sponsored by the University of Northampton, the first UK university to be awarded the Ashoka U Changemaker Campus status in recognition for their commitment to social entrepreneurship. You think you've got all your systems down, sorted. We'll be like recording pros by now. Oh, technical issues galore this week. Basically, we like upgraded our equipment and we thought, yeah, now we can look like proper podcasters. But the thing is, being a proper co- podcaster is hard. A proper podcaster. I know, I had to, a lot of P's. Hopefully our Pick audio... Up <laughs> As I was saying, so we're just trying to get figure out how to use this new equipment we've got. And I think we're just about there. I don't know, I guess you'll have to be the judge of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping they can hear more than... <laughs> and we're like, yeah, podcasting, <laughs> And then we finally got it sorted, and I'm like, Wayne, I think we got to hit record. And he's, he's listening to the headphones, and I was just like, Wayne. Just Wayne, dancing away to the intro. Wayne, Wayne, you have to hit record. Come on. <laughs> that, and the website's been playing up, something rotten. So apologies if, you, hopefully it's fixed by now, but apologies if over the last week you've been trying to listen to part one of this amazing interview with Amy Ostriker. Yep. Um, Some technical issues. Technical We've had a lot of te- technical issues this week. Getting the audio going, so hopefully this is the one that will kind of lead into the way of where we're going in the future, mm-hmm. hopefully. So if the podcast player on PowerfulNonsense.com is still playing up by this point, although you already listened to the episode, so... You figured it out. It's kind of, it's kind of a moot point, I guess. <laughs> although, no, because we will have put the podcast player, the old podcast player, into the, the breakdown yeah. if it's not working, so you... This episode's fine, but for the <laughs> backlog of episodes, if you do want to check them out, we advise you go via iTunes or Stitcher for now, um, and keep an eye out on our social media to see if the website's up and running as normal. The website's still there, but you can't listen to all the episodes via the website at the moment, which is annoying. But with any luck, it'll all be sorted by the time this episode goes out. So this week we've got part two with Amy, and I think it's going to be another cracker. Yes, cracker. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, in this part, because last week was very much about her story, her amazing story, might I add. Um, Whereas this half is much more about uh, being a creative and what being a creative means. Tapping back into your creativity. Tapping back into your creativity, whether or not we are born creatives or whether or not we can learn to be creative and all that sort of stuff. So great cracker of a part (laughs) two of an interview coming up right now with Amy Ostriker. People are so caught up on that that end result of this is going to be a drawing of this, <laughs> whereas actually a lot of the artists, uh, like professional, quote unquote, uh, artists will say, "Oh, I just start drawing. I don't know what I'm going to draw. I just go with the flow, and it turns into something as I'm going." And I think right. that says a lot for the creative process in general. It's actually about that starting with that baby step as you say and, right. and moving forward. But exactly forward. how you describe that, you know, making art isn't that the same thing that we have to do in life? You know, like, oh my god what am I going to do if something goes wrong? You know, I was in the studio um, yesterday actually and I was painting something and, you know, I always eat when I'm in the art studio, which I probably shouldn't. Um, and <laughs> anyway I spill. I was 
actually having chicken soup. And I spilled the entire soup all the way down my painting. And it was this beautiful figure. And I made this huge smear down it. And I was, you know, I was really upset. But then I'm like you know, what am I going to do about this? So, you know, it ended up sort of making a path across my paint and making this whole space in the middle. And I realized, wow, I could make this whole scene in the middle. And that's just, that's problem solving in action. You know, forget about saving an art piece. But, you know, I I say, (laughs) I say that, you know, in life, you know, this was sort of like a beautiful detour that happened with for me. Like, I didn't expect my stomach to explode. But, you know, you think about the beautiful flowers you see down the path and that sort of enrich your life and I think art is a great way you know because if you really don't think when you make art you're going to make lines and and colors and things like that that you don't expect and I think it's a great way to sort of test your resiliency muscles I think there's a bit of irony that uh, you started your art because your stomach exploded and you couldn't eat and then in the end your food created your art (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, that that's the least of it. I'm actually... Well, the thing is, you know, nothing's perfect. You know, Because it took so many surgeries to put me together, I can eat and it's great, but I only absorb about 20% of what I eat. So I am literally a human garbage disposal. <laughs> and because, because I'm little, people don't think like I'll eat that much until they see me and then their jaw just drops. Like I, <laughs> I'm the only person that goes grocery shopping with an entire backpack full of food to eat while I grocery shop. The first thing they think is that I'm shoplifting or something. But but then I'm like, no, 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 like I, I get hungry. Like I'm going to eat all this by the time I leave the store. So, so those are the joys and the and the struggles of of a makeshift digestive system. And who says you can't use chicken for mixed media anyway? Of course. <laughs> it's, I put my mixed media. It's funny actually because we were talking about kind of like people want that definite goal, that definite ending. I remember my art class when I was in school, it was kind of always about look at somebody else's art piece and then copy it as well as you can. And I always found that kind of weird that they kind of, in an art class, they basically want you to copy great people's art as if that's going to kind of lead you to become a an artist yourself. Right. I mean, I think it's great to be like inspired by artist like you know actually an artist that's really inspired me you know since I started art not knowing anything about it now all I want to do is learn about it but you know um Matisse who I you know he's known for all these amazing cut out collages like of the body and these like in these piercing blue kind of cutouts and he's so known for that but you know I didn't realize till I really started learning he only did that in the last decade of his life because you know he was made all these beautiful paintings and sculptures and then he was diagnosed with abdominal cancer he was bedbound but he still wanted to create so he actually had you know he painted um just lots and lots of blue canvas paper um or his assistants did and then he just cut up shapes in it from his bed and just arranged it and those were the last 10 years of his life and that was you know some of his most beautiful stuff um so you know it's amazing you know seeing some other artists inspiration it's funny though because i'm taking an art education class and we're supposed to talk about the kids' art and just say, not, you know, tell me about um, what this painting is of or anything like that, but, but okay, so is 
there anything you'd like to tell me about it? You know, don't point things out, but okay, what would you like to tell me about this painting? You know, I think it's great to just sort of stay away from comparison of like not even other artists, but just like of things. Like I hate the classes that are like, okay, paint this tree. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, I'd rather just keep it open-ended. I think that's sort of the fun part of art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want to really delve into the whole not being able to eat for six of the last ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. I think that's... I cannot... I still cannot get my head around how you couldn't eat or drink, for that matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me explain that a bit. I think it was even harder this way. Um... I was the my first bite of food um, after all this was actually three years later on my twenty first birthday actually at a doctor's appointment. The hard part was that you know I would get used to eating and all of a sudden you know I develop a fistula, which is you know when a wound doesn't like heal correctly or you know because of all my surgical scars sometimes they form little pathways and basically a fistula is an opening in the body where there shouldn't be and so what would drive me crazy is the doctors who didn't really understand the psychology behind hunger they would say okay as long as this fistula is here just stop eating and drinking until it heals you know like it was nothing and they wouldn't understand that I was still psychologically hungry because you know they'd say well you'll be on IV food and that's 3,000 calories a day so you shouldn't be hungry so I'd literally you know at 4.30 I'd be having lunch and then I'd have this doctor's appointment and then at 5 o'clock you know I'd have to tell myself okay now for an indefinite amount of time I'll just stop eating and drinking and that took tremendous discipline and sometimes that would be for months and years so so um the first you know three years of this from 18 to 21 I couldn't eat or drink period and that was hell I mean hunger was bad but you know first things first in the heat of summer you know when you can't even have an ice cube you know I was going crazy and you know I was allowed to have sucking candies but I learned really quickly that when you have like sugary things it makes you more thirsty Mm -hmm. so I would get really hungry and say I'll have a lollipop and then I'd cry and be like I'm thirsty and you know I just did not learn um so so you know to cope with that I actually, this is what people can never really understand, but I got very obsessed with liquid. You know, I'd I'd sort of hoard all these drink containers and just lock myself in my room with my sink, just pouring, like, water from, you know, a baby bottle to a flask and just back and forth, you know, just to feel that. I, I think it's because I was so preoccupied with food that if I didn't at least, like, you know, acknowledge it, I would really go crazy. And, um, you know, I wanted to get one of those little toddler, like, water tables, you know, those play tables. But <laughs> my, mo- my mom wasn't so keen on that. <laughs> but, um, you know, anyway, then the drinking came first. And that was actually sort of fun for me because I wasn't surgically hooked up yet. But it was sort of like a, I almost want to say a favor the doctors said to me, you know, did for me. Um, what they did was, see if you can picture this. Um <laughs> I had a a bag put on my neck and a little opening in my neck. So when I drank, the water would go through the opening and into the bag, but it wouldn't wouldn't actually go 
to my stomach. So I would feel it in my throat, but I wouldn't absorb it, which looked a little weird when I'm like walking around in public and like drinking water and like holding like a bucket underneath my neck and it cuts <laughs> right out my neck. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I think about it now, like, God, people must have thought I was so weird. <laughs> um, but, but I loved it. You know, it was great. <laughs> I just always had to have a bucket under me. Um, but then, so finally, I was uh, surgically connected to EAT. Um, that was a two-part surgery, and the first part was 19 hours. Um, and it just, you know, it, it didn't go great. You know, that's where I developed wounds that kept reopening and reopening. So, you know, basically, I would start to eat, and then all of a sudden, my wound would just burst open, you know, and it would be back to the hospital. You know, that was my 13th surgery. I had no idea, you know, I'd be standing here 27 surgeries later. So I think that was the roughest part, you know, being so happy that I could finally eat and your things would be normal. And then just going in and out of not eating, eating, not eating, eating um, to cope with not eating actually for all those years. Again, like I became obsessed with food and, you know, I'd, I'd always been too busy to really cook or learn anything about it in my life. But I started reading cookbooks like they were novels. You know, every night that was my treat. You know, I would just stand in the kitchen and read these like, you know, really, really elaborate cookbooks. And eventually I taught myself to cook. And since I couldn't eat, I developed like a very good sense of smell. So, you know, I started using spices like they were different paints, you know, and create these spice palettes. And, you know, I'd make really intricate recipes and I'd cook for my mom and dad all the time and they loved it. And, you know, it's on my blog from 2011. And looking back, you know, when I'm making all these recipes, you know, and I'm writing, oh my God, I'm so hungry. I'm looking at that like, God, that was torture. How the heck did I put myself through that? But, you know, at the time it felt like, okay, well, if I don't cook, I'm just going to be thinking all day about it. You know, it was a way for me to feel food again, like physically. You know, you don't realize until it happens to you that, you know, food is a very physical thing. It's something we feel in our bodies. It's also social. It connects us to people. You know, I had to be a hermit in my room for years because any outside stimulation would make me hungry, you know, and everyone had a bottle of water or lunch or or something, you know, it was very hard for me to be in the world, um, which is why I think I needed to create and make art and things like that, not only as a distraction, but I needed something that made me feel human. So, yeah, it was a crazy time. <laughs> and didn't you actually start a food business at the same time? I did. I, did. <laughs> I, I know. It, it's, it's crazy. Again, like if I didn't produce something, I would feel dead inside. So, you know, coming out of the hospital, it's one thing when you can't eat and drink in the hospital and you're sort of protected and you can't go anywhere. But, you know, I never thought that when I'd finally get out, I still wouldn't be allowed to eat and drink. And I almost didn't want to leave. You know, my parents threw out, threw out all the food in the house. My dad would hide in the garage eating his dinner. Um, you know, my parents just didn't know what to do. Um, so to get through, I just lock myself in my room all day and I just journal just hundreds of pages. And then for exactly 80 minutes, I timed it, you know, at 830 when I'd watched the entire lineup on the Food Network. 
I'd come downstairs and 80 minutes was the perfect amount of time that I could make chocolates for a chocolate business and then get, when I got too hungry, I'd just go right upstairs to bed and you know, wait for the next day. But that sort of evolved because I remember there was like a bag of M&Ms I like found on the table and I realized that holding the candies in my hand it was a way I could feel again. I was like, wow, like food, I miss this. And then I liked playing with it. And it was almost a way for me to be creative. And then it all, then I realized it gave me an excuse to go food shopping. So at first I just sort of experimented with like melting chocolate in my microwave. But then leave it to me, I, I ended up knowing like the nuances of making like peanut butter cups and truffles and decorating them. And I made this like, complete legit chocolate business that I shipped out you know gifts to states all over the country um so and then as soon as I could eat I just didn't care anymore so I just quit um, just started making chocolate for yourself instead yeah yeah no except now I can't have sugar and I can't have high fat with my uh digestive system so oh, that yeah. is a thing of the past but um it was fun while it lasted it was good for Christmas gifts <laughs> yeah wow I mean, you're yeah. a real glutton for punishment, aren't you? <laughs> I know. No, well, you know, another thing I tell people that they can never understand is when I was in the child life department, which is like the kid center in the hospital, you know, all the kids who couldn't eat were always the ones who wanted to play in the toy kitchen. You know, think about, like, tell yourself not to think about, like, an elephant right now, you know, and you mm-hmm. can't, you know, and then it's like an issue you can't scratch. So, in a way, it was almost calming, in a very weird way. We interrupt your regular Powerful Nonsense broadcast. How very dare we. I'm sorry. But we have to. Uh, because we have a sponsor. And we're going to give them a cheeky plug. Because they deserve it. And our sponsor is the University of Northampton. If you're considering going to university, if you're considering entrepreneurship as a potential uh, career path, um, and you also want to get a degree check out Northampton. Northampton.ac.uk. Thanks very much to the University of Northampton for supporting the show. Let's get back to the interview. That must have taught you some serious lessons in terms of other things in your life. And when you have that feeling and knowing that you can actually just like work through it, I mean, you never knew when you'd be able to eat again. Yet you, I mean, I guess you had to, in the same way that people do with business, you had to just put that one step in front of the other and not, because you never knew where the end was really. Right. But it's, it's also, it's also that creativity talk again, you know, um, and then I, I learned from an occupational therapist that they actually call this therapeutic lying, you know, <laughs> and when you, when you're writing and reading like, you know, adventure novels, they call it willing suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, you know, you create hope for me, for yourself, you know call it being like a silly optimist but that's actually a survival skill you know I bought a big chalkboard during that time and I'd make a big countdown with you know every week saying seven days you know till I can eat six days five days and I just redid that calendar you know when I got to zero I'm like oh you know next week you know I just do that countdown every time because you know that little bit gives you hope it's like it's like when you're like doing personal training and the guy tells you you have like 12 reps and he's like oh four more you know <laughs> if, you know if you ever knew it was doing 16 you'd be like no I can't so I think it's a survival skill even more than just like you know achieving your dreams it's also something you have to do to get through things and and did you find i mean from a psychological level 
um, with the whole being when you were told okay yeah you can now finally eat and then kind of thinking it was over to then you know a week or two later finding out that you you can't eat again like that must have been such so yeah. horrible and, and it was frustrating too because you know like I mentioned you know some doctors understood but you know if you just looked at it scientifically and said well you know you're on TPN, which is the IV food, like, why are you hungry? You know, they didn't really understand that, wow, you know, you've just had this huge, you know, you've realized how great it is to be eating again, and you're planning dinner already. And all of a sudden, it's not just, oh, stop eating tonight, or for a week, it's just stop eating till things get better. And for one of the times is actually on my blog, which I didn't expect to happen. Um, they just said for three to four weeks. It ended up being four months. And it's so depressing reading my blog entries because it's like day 41, day 63. <laughs> you know, and, and it's hard because... Again, like I was physically able to eat. I knew I was because I had just done it the night before. But all of a sudden, it's like, oh, right, I can't have water. You know, it's a, it's, um, you know, it's, it was a behavior modification that felt unnatural at that point. So, yeah, that alone could drive you insane. And then, you know, I also had to deal with the repercussions that come from it. You know, another thing I didn't understand is, you know, to not eat or drink, I had to become very numb, you know, very robotic, you know, because if I felt, you know, pain or happiness or anything, you know, you feel human and that makes you hungry. You don't realize how much hunger comes with being alive. So, you know, when I could eat for the first time, I felt all these emotions I had never experienced experienced in years I mean the good as well as the bad like it was the first time I was feeling so it was the first time I was really able to process like my sexual abuse and what had happened to me you know so eating sort of unlocked all these you know emotions so you know whenever the doctor said okay stop eating all of a sudden I'd have to numb out again you know to the point that to this day sometimes I'll go into that you know in PTSD you call it sort of dissociation you know where you're just not there and then I'll have to remind myself you know okay I gotta ground myself you know that's an issue I'll always live with as sort of like a PTSD side effect that you know oh right I used to numb out to cope with not eating let me remember that I can be present now so you know it was they were interesting realizations um you then went on to um do your show like what how far on was that into your pro the process or yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you could say that it happened from the beginning because, um, you know, like I said, to cope with not eating and drinking, I just journal hundreds and hundreds of pages. I mean, looking back on it, I was reading it. It's almost funny. Like I'm just typing to keep my fingers moving. And it was a way of just being able to not leave my room. I was petrified of leaving my room because, you know, food and drink and all that. So, you know, it's funny how one thing leads to another. You know, I ended up discovering art in the hospital. And then I ended up being on the Today Show for, you know, my discovery of art and my story and all that kind of stuff. Um, and on that show, um, David Friedman was on the show, who is an amazing cabaret composer. And so I was really excited he was on. So after the show, I'm like, you know, like, I don't, I've always wanted to put together a cabaret act. Would you want to work with me? Um, and he said, sure. And so I brought him, you know, songs that I'd always loved. And, you know, he, we basically, I used 
you know, segments from all those journal writings as my script, like my dialogue. And I put 16 songs, you know, one he had written for me with Kathy Lee Gifford and another one I had written myself during that time. And it ended up being, you know, first a cabaret act. And then I ended up on my own really turning that into a, a piece of solo theater that I called Gutless and Grateful, which was sort of my story, you know, even the sexual abuse and everything, um, in like a 70-minute musical, believe it or not, comedy. Um, <laughs> and so that took two years to put together. <clears throat> I did that in New York in 2012. And it was the first time, you know, besides the art where you're just sort of expressing these things, it was the first time I was talking about these things. And you don't realize how different it is to to share your story in that way. First of all, I hadn't shared it with anyone. And then I finally choose to do it, but to a crowd of New York theater critics and strangers, which was a big risk for me. Um, but what I didn't expect was people would be so inspired by it, you know, when you're going through something, I don't think you realize how terrible things are because, you know, you're the one going through it. Um, but for me, that showed me sort of the power of sharing our stories, that it's a way for us to not only feel connected, but it makes us feel like, you know, it makes us feel stronger that we're not the only one that has been through something before. And after doing that, that sort of inspired the next sort of portion of my life right now, which is, you know, going around the country and doing my show and, and leading workshops about, you know, sharing our stories. Because, you know, I realized that, you know, by hearing other people's stories, that gave me hope. So I'm hoping by sharing my story, I can hopefully, you know, inspire someone that was in my position. I mean, a lot of people as well might be thinking, <laughs> well, my story is probably never going to be like Amy's. Hers is like amazing what's going on and what she's managed to get through what would you say to someone who kind of says well I, I haven't got nothing like that to talk about what would you say to them right. so so that's something that you know come up a lot because my story is just weird you know you say <laughs> oh my stomach exploded to the top of the OR oh, okay that's a little weird <laughs> you know so um, after my show, people would come up to me and they would almost like apologize for being touched by it. Like, you know, I haven't been through anything like you have been, but, you know, I had this little thing in my life and you sort of helped me get through. And it almost felt like they were asking for permission to heal. You know, like they didn't really, you know, they hadn't been through something monumental. And that always felt funny to me. Because I really feel like, you know, there's a great Viktor Frankl quote who was a Holocaust survivor. And he said, you know, suffering is relative. He compares it to, you know, the proportion of gas that expands in like a closed container. You know, so, you know, what I went through is you know, is traumatic in my life because, you know, it's my experience, but something, you know, a breakup or a sprained ankle or any, you know, unexpected detour in someone else's life, you know, is just as traumatic to them. And I don't think it's what happens to us that sort of, you know, tells us whether it's worthy enough to heal. I think what's important is how we choose to deal with it, with anything, you know, Going back to what you said that, you know, there are people in life that sort of take circumstances and maybe, you know, they don't know what to do about it or it sort of makes them give up. You know, whatever those things, we can have those reactions to, you know, life-shattering circumstances. We can have those reactions to, to little things. I think what's important is that, 
even though what happened to me was extreme, you know, I felt the same things everyone else experiences, you know, pain and uncertainty and frustration. And so I just want to share how I coped with things because it helped me. And I think those skills can help other people too. You know, um, one thing, you know, when I was coming out of my coma, you know, I was didn't even know where to start. And my mom read me the autobiography of the Central Park jogger, you know, who had a terrible story, you know, that, you know, was jogging in Central Park and, you know, she was raped and she woke up with all these medical terrible things. And, um, you know, I remember hearing that story in a coma and I was so just mad at what happened to me that I was hearing that and I was thinking, yeah, right, you know, I'm never going to get better. You know, I see her story, but, you know, that's never going to happen to me. You know, I'm always going to be stuck like this. But in the back of my head, it sort of gave me a little hope, like subconscious hope, even if I didn't want to admit it. And I think we sort of reserve hope in the back of our heads. And when we're ready to accept that, we have it, then we use it. You know, it's like, you know, it's like fuel. Uh, And I think when we're ready to take that step of like, okay, I'm ready to like make a change in my life, you know, then it's there. So even if my show and my story is just like planting seeds, you know, I hope it can do that. Is there any other sort of ways that you think people, I mean, obviously for your show and for your message, how else can people sort of tap into that hope? Um, You know, I just wrote something about, you know, keeping hope alive. And Something that people are always, you know, fascinated with is um, for my 27th surgery, again, big disaster, blah, 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 huge setback, didn't expect it. I was stuck in the hospital for months, and again, doctors told me I couldn't eat or drink. And this was really the worst because I had just done my show for the first time, like the month before. So that was my way of like, you know, feeling like, oh, I'm on top of the world. I put a message on this, you know, I'm done. And then I got one more surgery and just set me back. So this was awful. Um, And it was really hard for me to keep hope, especially, you know, I lost 30 pounds in the surgery. I didn't look anything like I did on stage and it was depressing. So after like a few weeks, I didn't know what to do. So I actually took a piece of paper and I made a gratitude list and I didn't know where to start. So I just first labeled the page like A through Z and every day I just made myself, you know, with my mom, I'd make her do it too. Uh, I have good parents. They stay with me in the hospital, (laughs) everything, please. Um, And, you know, every day we just make our list. Um... And even if they were like sort of stretches and, you know, eventually we got into the rhythm of it. And it's almost like we were strengthening our gratitude muscles. And once you started thinking of some things, you know, soon other things just started to come naturally. You know, it just took the first letter was the hardest. And, you know, gratitude isn't just like sort of like a fluffy kind of, oh, I'm grateful for. Again, I think that's a really vital tool to keep up your hope because gratitude, when you realize what you're thankful for, you realize what you're about, you know, and you realize who you are. And gratitude also is a way of, you know, saying, okay, these are great things in my life. And, you know, if I find these great things, you know, there is hope for other things to get better. And I think once we get sort of that positive energy, 
it's just enough to keep us going through the next day. So it's, I mean, there is no magic trip to keeping up hope. Hope is sort of like a, a belief that you create for yourself. But I think the thing is you got to keep fooling yourself. I hate putting it that way, but you know, you got to keep, you know, imagining that hope. And sometimes creativity isn't like a fun thing. Sometimes you need creativity to keep going. And I think that's why by making art and practicing, we can sort of strengthen our creativity for really hard times when we're going to need it for survival. So I think it puts it in a totally new perspective. And I think that kind of goes back to when you said about Viktor Frankl's book, because I think what I can remember is he said that it was those people in the in the the camps that had that hope, whether even if they kind of thought maybe their partners had been killed or something, or that they had no home to return to, is the people that had a hope of having those things actually ended up surviving. Right. You know, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. You know, she survived Auschwitz at, at 18. And, you know, she, you know... <laughs> Well, when I knew her, you know, she was the most joyous person. You, you could see the, the pain in her eyes, but, but, you know, she had, you know, you could see her love of life. And I think love of life needs to be thought of more than just like a fluffy, happy thing. Love of life is really what keeps you going in, in rough circumstances. And I think, you know, for me, like at that time, by starting the Grateful List, I realized what anchored me here. You know, sometimes, you know, life is a job and it's not always fun, but, you know, you have to remember sort of why you signed up in the first place, you know, and, and just keep going as, as hard as it is. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have to let you go in a minute, but we've got two questions which we ask every guest. Yes. Uh-oh. Jeez, <laughs> are you going to ask my favorite food? Cheese. <laughs> no, you're all right there. guess. Okay, I'm wrong. So the show's called Powerful Nonsense. So yeah. the two questions that we ask are, uh, what's the most powerful piece of advice you've ever been given? And the second question is, what's the biggest load of nonsense you ever heard? <laughs> the biggest <laughs> advice I've ever been given. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, I've ever been given. Can I use that Victor Frankl thing? If that's the most powerful piece of advice, then yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I gotta think of something else. <laughs> um, no, you know what? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna use my mom here. I mean, because she was with me for like every night in the hospital, and you know, she told me, you know, just keep going through the next day, and one day you'll wake up and things will be different. So I I, I gotta say that because that's what helped me survive. That's if you great. keep waking up to the next day, something will be different. That's great. Now, the powerful nonsense. No, the biggest piece of nonsense. <laughs> well, it's kind of could be powerful nonsense in a way. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, well, yeah, here's the thing. Um, when I do blank, then I'll be happy. Right. Okay? That's something I learned the hard way. You know, when I get this job, when my stomach gets put together, when I can eat, when I, you know, that's, you know, life isn't like that. There are no black and white changes. Unfortunately, you know, you have to be there for those changes. And that's also what makes life the most rewarding, you know. So, you know, you got to sometimes, you know, make things happen for yourself as much as I would love everything to come together. So, yeah, don't wait for things to get better. Do it now. And just quickly, finally, you mentioned one book, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Are there any other books that you would suggest for our listeners? Oh, yes. Um, 
uh, embracing uncertainty. Um, I forget who wrote that, but I mean, that was a really good book that helped me. Also, anything by, um, you know, uh, Pima Hodron, which um, she, you know, she's a Buddhist writer that writes a lot about, you know, um, embracing like fear and being present and things like that. Just read, read everything. (laughs) Get inspired. Well, thank you so much for having you on the show, Amy. I'm oh, sure we. Oh, read my blog too. There you go. Yeah, we'll definitely put a link in the in the breakdown of this episode. <laughs> yeah, are you, you're on Twitter as well, aren't you, Amy? I'm on. Oh, I hate to say this. She's yeah, on I'm everything. on. I'm on every form of social media possible. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be. You gotta be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel. I feel like we've only like skimmed the surface of all the stories you potentially have, but I do oh, feel. Oh yeah, like... that's that's my life story. There's too much in me. <laughs> <laughs> but we thank you for sharing what you did, and I'm sure the people that listen to this are going to get a lot out of it. And I think, like you said, there, the gratitude is such a powerful thing. But it's so mm-hmm. inspiring to hear from people like yourself who have like literally had setbacks but keep pushing forward and you're doing amazing things now and the message you're sharing is inspiring to everybody oh thank you and thank you for connecting with me so there you go another great interview I love Amy I think her energy is just infectious and the stuff she shared is just so powerful it gives you no no excuses to not go and pursue the things you want to be doing so that's it for this week we've got a favour to ask again we're always asking things, aren't we? Yeah, we are. But we give you this stuff for free, so it's the least you could do, right? So what we really want you guys to do is to actually go into iTunes and give us a review. I know it's a bit of a pain in the ass to write reviews, but we need reviews in order for our podcast to go up in the rankings of iTunes, which means we get to reach out to a lot more people, and a lot more people can hear from people like Amy and loads of the other great guests that we've got coming up. So thanks for listening. Thanks for those reviews. And we will see you next week. We will catch you later. See you later.